How are we doing, ladies and gents? Welcome to another debrief with your boys, Cup of Nurses here. Coming live from San Diego, we have officially started our travel nursing contract. Same spot, same hospital, different patients. You know how it same is. Same amount of floating, to be honest. <laughs> that has not changed. Actually, we, we float off the rip. At least um, when we first started the contract, we just got orientation on the unit and um, a few days before we got floated. But here, they knew who we are. Floated, floated. Three, first three nights, I floated. That's it, it's floating. Yeah, so my first dates, it was interesting where I bypassed orientation. So in Peter's scenario, he you just extended your contract, right? Yeah. I ended up coming back for a new contract is the way they called it. I went to talk to the manager, got the hook up there. I got the authority or authorization to skip orientation, but of course they told me you're good to go. That was not the case. I thank God I went to work half an hour early where I went to security, got my badge access, uh, hopped on Epic. Of course, my password didn't work. I had to call them, troubleshooted. So by the time 7 p.m. came, I was able to take my patients. Yeah. And I lost my access because remember how they told me to come to work Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and I came there Monday? I was able to badge into to the doors. So I had access. So what probably happened is they took me off <laughs> and put you on that, that probably first Wednesday that you started work. Yeah. Because I, I had badge access the first day. Well, I just didn't have to work, surprisingly, you know? So they probably just f took me off for some reason. Maybe they, they made a mistake and then they added you and then took me off because I had no access on the Thursday that I came in. Yeah, and Wednesday. there was absolutely no stress about it. It's mm -hmm. something you expect as a travel nurse or any single time you go into a shift, you know that things are not going to be smooth. You're going to be looking for things. Even in my, my shift, handful of times, you're looking for the vital cart. You're looking for some lab vials because things aren't stocked. You're mm -hmm. looking around for catheters or mouth swabs because you have no idea where anything is so always expect friction just part of the game when it comes to being a nurse to be honest yeah 100 percent. and you're telling me a little bit about about your uh, patients you had some stories you want to bless us with your stories yeah you, you want to tell me tell me too much you yeah yeah i'm saving it for the thing so i'll start with a lady that was there for like 180 days and when we were there travel nursing back in beginning of the year she was admitted around April, still was there in September time when I came. And just a very sad case because the family didn't want to let go. One one daughter wanted, the other daughter didn't. Caused, caused a lot of disputes where I had to be calling when the other one daughter leaves, so another one come, come in. Very bad family dynamic. She was very, very sick. She had multiple myeloma. Throughout this hospital stay, she had a complicated bleeds, a total of 36 units of blood. And she ended up getting tricked and pegged because of her almost coding, can't breathe on her own, still trying to keep her alive, had a, you know, developed a stage four, unfortunately. All this stuff is going on. And then the doctor said, like, hey, this is futile care. We can't be doing this. There's no benefit for her. What are we really doing here? So the shift that I got on for her. The family, which was a daughter that had a hard time letting go, finally decided, let's do comfort care. So what happened is we got the order for morphine, and it was uh, only IV push, 4 milligrams, Q4, instead of the regular drip, with some Ativan and then the other medication to um, decrease secretions. The patch? The, yeah, it's a, it's a scolding patch, but this one was IV push, mm. something with the letter G. Not glyphosate. 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 Yeah. Don't be eating that. <laughs> yeah, watch out for your grains and your, and your rices. Yeah, and oatmeal nowadays, <laughs> I've heard, especially Quaker oats. Yeah. Do you know if they ever got ethics involved? 
because we always hear, hey, these hospitals have ethics committees, but every time that I feel like I've experienced an ethical dilemma case, you could say, there is an ethics committee and it gets thrown around, but I feel like nothing ever goes to the ethics committee. So did they ever do anything with the ethics committee for this patient that you know They of? did have ethics involved. I just didn't read the chart fully to see how far it went. Yeah. Um, but what, what was good is, hey, they finally decided to comfort. So she was vent dependent, went on a trade collar. Family went home and they told me, hey, let me know when she goes. Mm-hmm. I told them, hey, it might be hours might be days might be weeks we have no idea mm. she's been around for 180 days fighting she could just fight for another month for all that we know yeah and what happened is that shift i was in other patients room i just heard the alarm go off the nurse tells me hey your patient's gone because i left the telly and man was that family still pissed about all this so mm. not only was there futile care involved from the family side they were pissed as hell at me that i didn't let them know when her mother is going to pass yeah, like but, just, but I'm not a fortune teller. Yeah, just take out your crystal ball and you know <laughs> tell them when they're gonna pass away. That's the one thing is like people always want to know when a loved one's gonna pass away, and it's super hard to dictate. It, you, you have you have no idea. You have no idea. Some people really hold on to life, and it takes twelve hours, eight hours, a couple of days. Sometimes you have to have them go to different floors so they can have more privacy. It's always a really really tough call. So I mean, I always tell families I'd rather have them stay. But of course, that's not always the situation. Unless I know they're going to last a couple hours. Sometimes, sometimes you, you you could sometimes you could kind of I want to say sometimes you could gauge it. What's well, really hard, but but when someone's like a DNR and they're on one presser and then you take them off, you kind of almost eyeball it. But right. in in your, in your case, it was, it was really hard. I had that patient many times before, and I felt like she was ready to go. Like she was ready to go months ago. Yeah, it's like it's like you look at her and you're looking at a skeleton. There's nothing that they you can do for a poor lady, and it's just she's wasting away. It's tough. Yeah, and just like you said, sometimes you can predict it where you're looking at that breathing pattern where they're taking a breath every five to six seconds. It's very delayed, and it's like okay, hey, impending doom. But in this case, it seemed like the heart just gave out, braided down, mm-hmm. asystole. We can't do any do anything about that. Yeah, and if, if somebody puts you on a spot and really wants to know when a patient is going to pass, the best thing you could do is is just say, hey, I'd rather you stay here overnight and just wait with your family member. That's always a good option to to uh, to choose from instead of guessing or, or, or eyeballing it because we're not sure. So just always tell a family member, I'd rather have you stay overnight or throughout the day. And it's hard because a lot of time our patients or family members ask us these very direct questions. How long is this usually going to be? What does this scenario look like? And it's a human experience. Everybody's so much mm-hmm. different. I can tell you what happens after a stroke in the steps, but I can't tell you what is the recovery of your left and right leg. I don't know if your limb is going to fully recover and you can move. That's based on rehab and what has to happen, where the stroke is, and hmm. a neuro- neurologist knows more than that. So we get asked some difficult questions, man. And shout out to all the nurses that de-escalate the situation or know how to respond in the best manner where you're not instilling false hope hmm. and pay the family's still satisfied with the care that you're that you're giving. Right. And it's comfort care. So usually we have prescribed, like in your case, morphine. You're not sure how patients are going to react to the morphine. Yeah. Yeah, they, they might have been been fine with with the morphine on the pressures, but now you DC the the levo and now the patient isn't as constricted. So morphine's going to help them pass away a little bit a little bit quicker. But you don't really know. Everyone reacts to it too differently. So it's really hard to gauge. Yeah, it's tough. Yeah, and I had another case that 
blew me away completely different from everything and it was a si patient suicidal and what happened with with their case i think it's both beautiful and sad at the same time so this relationship was very dependent the wife was going on hospice and she had two weeks to live it seems like they had no family just a niece and nephew around so they planned a joint suicide attempt where he had some neck pain he was just stashing away his oxycodones they ended up collecting like 50 plus Mm. they all decided to take it one day and end their lives hospice nurse comes in sees them both laying in bed with vomit calls ems you know gave some narcan ended end up saving their lives but it's just so sad because you're in your 80s and you are so dependent on your wife where you don't want to be without her mm. and it's just so sad with with the situation where you have a, you know you're one on one you're 5150 hold and you can't go see your loved one when she's passed away from from whatever the complication is cancer mm. i'm assuming and she only has a week or two left so just go let them be together I don't know how all that clearance has to be, but just go let them have the rest of their time together. Yeah. Lock up the medication in the safe, put a code in where the nephew and niece only knows and just help them live the rest of their life peacefully. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's a, that was an unfortunate case. Yeah, I feel like if one of them passes away, the other one's going to get the, uh, what's it called, broken heart syndrome and they're going to slowly deteriorate as, as well. We see that a handful of times where the husband passes away and the husband was the wife's entire life and now she has nothing to do nothing to really care for you could say almost like they lose a purpose in life and it slowly starts i don't want to say slowly but they start to decline more quickly than they would they would normally and that's probably what's going to happen in, in your case because you if i remember correctly the the one of the significant others has cancer right so they were going to pass away before the other one that's why they're committing suicide right? yeah they both yeah. did it together so they could both rest peacefully mm-hmm. yeah yeah so one of the one of these uh, people in this couple is going to pass away short shortly other ones unfortunately going to probably follow suit with the broken heart syndrome yeah it's tough it's tough it's part of life how was mm-hmm. your uh, shifts anything exciting man I've been CWA central man I think we had like six or seven CWA patients every nurse had a CWA I had the luxury of having two so uh, that was nice one of them was busy other one was, was wasn't that bad wasn't that bad uh my major Siwa, the one that was having these withdrawals, he drank over a gallon a day of, of vodka, whatever he get is basically hands on. He's been doing that for, for 15 years. He's been basically hydrating on vodka, man. Yeah. I barely drink a gallon of water a day. <laughs> yeah, dude. And the thing is, he says that it makes him feel warm. So I happened to have um, the day after I finished listening to the uh, Gabber Monte podcast with Joe Rogan, and they talked about tra- childhood trauma. And they mentioned in the podcast where this guy was doing heroin and he said that he loved the feeling of heroin because it made you feel warm and, and almost felt like your mom was hugging you. So I asked, I started picking this patient's brain, like how his childhood was, how, like what, do you, what did he struggle with growing up? And uh, his dad was in and out of jail, I wasn't really there for him. So I could kind of, I guess, correlate that, that warm feeling that, that, that he got when he, when he drinks was probably um, his feelings being being swallowed by the, by, the, by the alcohol and it made him feel warm and almost felt like like a love that he never got. Yeah, he, so. didn't, he didn't know how to give it to himself mm-hmm. internally so that dopamine rush was always X amount of heroin or X amount of alcohol that gave him that same feeling. Yeah. And, that, and that's, that's so unfortunate but we, we do see so many trauma even like going back to this case with the SI 
he he was really confused. It was hard to pick his brain. But for the conversations that we had, it seems like his father did give him like some physical abuse yeah. where mm. I try to like hold him down because he's trying to get out of bed. It's like, don't touch me. Only my father can do that mm. or only was allowed to do that. Oh, shit. So then you start picking up on like, wow, maybe he did get physically abused. And he, he was always mentioning 100 hours of work. And I lived, mm. worked a lot of my life. So it's like, again, there's different escapes. It could be drugs. It could be being a workaholic where you have no time for yourself. And then you're still feeling negative. Mm. And yeah. Yeah, and his patient actually had a brother, and his brother wasn't an alcoholic, but his brother was obese. So it's crazy because one of my my patient, he left, he hit his feelings by drinking alcohol. The other one did it with food. So it's like a, it's like a crazy concept where they both struggle with addiction. And he was telling me that his brother does struggle with with addiction, but with junk food, he likes to eat a lot. He likes to feel full. That, that's the thing. Wow. So it's like crazy how they both went through the, the same trauma and they both had, had addiction. One to food, one to alcohol. Mind-blowing. Yeah, it's, it's, so, it's so unfortunate, especially yeah. in, in healthcare. We always try to... We talked about this in the car about diet, uh, like ADHD and like labeling people with disease processes, but really there's so much more behind the surface if you really get to know patients mm-hmm. and what's happening that they're just... They need healing. Yeah. And since we're on CWAL, I could run you guys through the, the whole CWAL protocol. So when somebody comes comes to the hospital with alcohol draw, we usually put them on something called a CWAL protocol. You usually just Ativan, also called Lorazepam. Sometimes we give them a Valium or Phenobarb, depending on how bad their withdrawals are. And this guy was withdrawing really bad. And his problem was that he was not responding to, to Ativan at all. I tried PO, I tried IV. So I came on shift, and within the first four hours, I gave him 18 milligrams. And the nurse on, on days gave him a total of 12. And literally, I gave him 18 within the first three and a half hours of my shift. And it didn't, did nothing to him. It didn't, didn't touch him. So then I got a Valium. Then I gave him 10 milligrams of Valium. And that finally did something for him because this guy was having tremors real bad. He was sweating real bad. He had a headache. He was nauseous. Uh, he, wasn't, he didn't tell me he had a visual hallucination. But every time he dozed off, he, he was talking to himself. And like somebody was there. But when he was awake, he's fine. But when he was sleeping, he was talking in his sleep. So there was, he was definitely hallucinating. He was definitely having a hard time. He just felt like garbage. So I tried to get the Ativan switched to the Valium. A doctor wouldn't do it because he wasn't very familiar with switching. He was more familiar with Ativan to Valium. He didn't want to give it to me. So I had to keep paging him for PRN Valium. So I gave him a total of 18 milligrams of Ativan that shift and a total of 30 milligrams of, of Valium. That's a lot. Do got juiced up. So like I juiced up, yeah. And then finally, I told Dayshift like, "Hey, when they do the rounds, can we switch it from Ativan to Valium because Ativan's not touching him?" And the one thing that I'm always scared of with these like psych drugs, like Ativan or any kind of things, is, is sometimes you load them up, and it doesn't do anything, and for some reason, four to six hours later, it all hits them at once, and then they're snowed, and then you get intubated. So that's always my biggest fear with 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 Ativan and and drugs like that because sometimes you load them up. And you, say, and you think it's not working, it's not working. You're giving a four milligrams, six milligrams, five milligrams. You're like, damn, this isn't working, this isn't working. And it's been three hours where you're giving them every hour medication and it doesn't work. And then you keep loading him up. And then four hours later, mid, mid-shift or towards the end, he's completely zonked and he's not breathing. And that's like the one thing that, that really scares me with, with the two protocols because for some reason, even though these drugs have like a half-life, they, they have a time of onset, everyone's different. Everyone's different. Same like we talked about patients passing away and getting morphine for comfort care. Everyone's different. You're not, you're not yeah. sure they're going to relax. Sometimes, sometimes people get knocked out right away. Some people, you load them up and nothing happens. So it's kind of scary. 
And then so with CWAP, you usually assess them every two hours. And if they're withdrawing real bad, you could do it every hour. So I was basically doing CWAP every hour for basically the majority of my shift. Like the, solid, like the first, I'm gonna say eight to nine hours of my shift, I was just giving meds and just helping this guy relax. And then the last three or four were pretty calm because he was actually finally able, able to sleep. And he slept those last four hours of my shift and he slept basically all day because the guy didn't sleep like in two days. Yeah. It, was, it was rough, it was rough, but it was, it was cool. CWAPs are hit or miss. Sometimes you get CWAP, like my other patient was a CWAP, but he was fine. I gave him three milligrams of, of Ativan at 10 p.m. Two night shifts in a row, just help him sleep, and then he's been completely fine. And then some patients, they need to go to the ICU to mm. get some Presidex, and that's where we kind of snow them, watch them more closely. They just need to lay off yeah. and transition from that 48 to 72 hour period when the alcohol withdrawals are most prevalent. Yeah. And then also, just be careful for for seizure precautions if mm. you have your CY patient, pad your rails. And I'm sure that's already going to be a standing order because sometimes the withdrawals could be so bad, their threshold is decreased and they could go mm. into a um, full-blown seizure. Yeah, and I also recommend giving them a nicotine patch. Usually people that drink, they also usually smoke. So sometimes they're, you could say they're withdrawing from two different substances. Slap on a nicotine patch, let them just deal with alcohol withdrawal, and then tell them to cut down on cigarettes later. Yeah. You know, one thing at a time. Were they all, were you also giving uh, Lyrica? No, uh, I was using Librium. Librium, that's what it's called. Librium, Lyrica. Yeah. Lyrica is antidepressant. Yeah. Okay, Lyric. Librium. Librium. Yeah. I'm not sure what the what the f other name is for it, but Librium. Otherwise, it's like a big, big name. Yeah, I don't know the whole mechanism of action, but I know it's part of the CWAL bundle to mm. get patients started on the Valium or the Ativan. Ativan. Or Phenobarb. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sometimes you can put them on like a lorazepam drip too, but I've only seen that happen one time. And during, <laughs> that was when I was a still a staff nurse and I literally gave like 24 milligrams of Ativan in the first four hours of my shift. And then we had to put them on an, on an Ativan drip. But only for, like, for a couple hours, because like, <laughs> we put them on an Ativan drip at like four o'clock in the morning and then the, they did rounds at seven and doctor freaked out. He's never seen Ativan drip in his life. <laughs> he DC'd it. So that was my experience with Ativan drip for yeah. hours. What else is new other than working shifts? So we are going to TravCon. Going to TravCon actually tomorrow after this recording. So the next debrief will give you guys a little background of what our experience was. We're going to go have some fun there, network a little bit, check out the party, see what the TravCon nursing partying is all about. Mm. Looking forward to that. It's our first time going. People, so many people have been there a handful of times. I'm, I'm genuinely curious on what happens. Nurses like to party. We'll see what they do when they're not partying, you know? <laughs> Yeah, and then also as a podcast, it's going to be a great resource to go hang out with everybody in the market, see what they're up to, the new things that are happening in travel nursing, and we want to be more and more involved with as we're growing our brand out. Yeah, and to Vegas, so maybe we could do like a Vegas and a TravCon vlog. Yeah, oh yeah, and out. we're vlogging the whole experience, mm -hmm. so whenever that episode is out, we'll link it in the podcast so you guys could check it out. Yeah, for sure. Thank you guys for your time. We'll see you on the next debriefing. Peace.